Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 11th, 2011. And and no, I don't think there's a significance between the 11 and the 11. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we cover them here at Fighting for the Faith. In many ways, this is the what-not-to-wear of theology and apologetics programs. Yeah, this, this uh, we cover the things that you, that really are the major train wrecks in Christianity, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people on board uh, those trains when they wreck. So uh, we 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 we're kind of like first responders, if you would, you know, to the train wreck, you know, <laughs> getting people off of the flaming wreckage and uh, bandaging them up and teaching them the truth. That's really the idea. Now, today is my first day back since our family tragedy. Uh, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you've heard that uh, uh, the Roseboro family suffered a, a, a significant uh, loss. And um, so I'm just getting in back into the saddle, uh, just ever so brief. The details of it is is that uh, my son's wife was pregnant with uh, twin with twin girls, and uh, she miscarried last week, and um, there's just a lot of emotion and drama and sadness uh, wrapped up in the Roseboro family as a result of uh, that event. So if you can continue to keep the Roseboro family in your prayers, that would be greatly appreciated. I'm going to try to do a program today, even though I still am a bit emotionally numb um, so as a result of it, it's, I, it's not quite, uh, I'm not quite a hundred percent, but, uh, I think you'll understand, uh, it, it, that being the case. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how the program goes today. I, I still think it'll be a decent program. <laughs> I hope I land on my feet and, uh, we'll, we'll go from there. In fact, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's program. Uh, it's been a long time since we've had one of these updates, but William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, has finally posted another uh, end times prophetic type video. And so we're going to be doing a William Tapley update today. Um, and apparently he's discovered a um, 
an astronomy program on the internet named Stellarium that he was able to fast forward into time to accurately pinpoint the day of some major uh, uh, astrological event that's supposedly going to be upsetting for the Antichrist. And he's discovered it using the Stellarium web <laughs> program. So we'll, we'll, we'll start off with something a little bit easy and then work our way up to stuff that's a little bit more difficult today. Uh, we're also going we're also going to talk about uh, I'm, I'm going to begin reading a series of articles uh, written by J.I. Packer about Harold Camping. Uh, you know, we are we are not that far out now. It's uh, one month and ten days to uh, Harold Camping's prediction of the rapture taking place on May 21st of 2011, and um, I'm getting more and more emails from people asking for help on what to do with this. And in fact, if you follow me on Twitter, then you also know that uh, one of Harold Camping's uh, people, uh, you know, who has been tweeting out about the end of the world, has uh, decided to, you know, to bird dog me on uh, on Twitter. And so I want to talk about if you know somebody who uh, buys into Harold Camping's um, uh, prediction regarding the rapture taking place on May 21st, 2011, um, I, I have a suggestion on how best to approach and handle uh, your loved one, your friend, uh, uh, maybe a church associate. I, you know, maybe they don't need, you know. But uh, if you have somebody who is uh, in the Herald Camping camp and is trying to warn you that if you don't believe that the rapture is going to take place on May 21st, 2011, that you're going to uh, burn in hell, uh, then uh, I, I have, a, I have a, a suggestion on on how to handle that because uh, those those folks are heading you know remember we talked about the train wreck at the opening of the program yeah their train is heading into a huge brick wall more like a canyon cliff and um, and so uh, they're gonna they're gonna need first responders there to uh, reach them with the biblical gospel and uh, the biblical Jesus uh, as you know after they become disillusioned because uh, on May 21st, the rapture will not take place, and uh, in May, May 22nd, we'll roll around the entire world uh, raptureless. And uh, and so, uh, you know, how how are you to uh, you know what what's the, a good strategy for approaching somebody that is a loved one or a friend who is bought into the camping ice? We'll talk about that. And then on the other half of the first break, we're gonna I'm gonna play for you several select videos, uh, audio from se- several select videos. Uh, regarding the elephant in the room conference, now you know I wasn't able to attend. I had they had originally uh, approved uh, me and Evan Gagline from uh, Table Talk Radio to attend on a media pass, and then at the la- literally the last minute they said no, sorry, we don't have room for you, and uh, we weren't able to go. And um, and you know obviously I was saddened by not being able to go however that being the case um you know i i i'm impressed with some of the things that i've seen coming out of the elephant room uh the elephant in the room conference and in particular what i want to do is play for you audio a, a quick audio segment from uh, james mcdonald uh, who is uh, the uh, the pastor there at the church who hosted the Elephant in the Room conference. And uh, he, he's uh, talking about the importance of preaching the gospel in every sermon. And it, from the looks of it, James McDonald, I don't, I don't really, I have, I, up until this time, I haven't really known much about him. Um, but the more I research him, the more, uh, let's just say impressed I am, the, the more at ease I am about him, 
And um, I was able to have a Twitter exchange yesterday with somebody who re- who uh, regularly listens to uh, James McDonald's sermons and was able to confirm uh, w- uh, the, uh, what was said in this audio that we'll play for you. And then what I'm going to do for yeah, I'm going to play for you uh, one of the free segments that's been posted on the Internet, an exchange between uh, Matt Chandler and Stephen Furtick. Um, and I'm going to fill in the missing audio video thing that's discussing so that you can you can hear what these guys are talking about in its full context. And um, after watching this video, this is another one of those reasons why um, I'm um, I'm encouraged. I'm very, very encouraged by what happened at the Elephant in the Room conference. And, uh, and this exchange between Chandler and Furtick, I think, will uh, help bear some, uh, a little bit more of that out so that you, may, that you may share in some of my encouragement. So, again, the more I learned about James McDonald, the more impressed I, I'm becoming. And, um, and so, anyway, we'll talk about that. And then uh, for our sermons today, I'm going to play two short Lent sermons that are good, Christ-centered, cross-focused sermons and um, I will be honest, uh, those sermons are, uh, they're for me. <laughs> I, I need to hear the gospel in a, just in a bad way. And, um, and, you know, with everything that's gone wrong in our family, um, I'm not to the point quite yet where I'm ready to, uh, to critique somebody else's sermon. I, I, I I'm going to be, uh, selfish is probably the wrong way of putting it, but, um, I, I need to hear these gospel sermons, and so we're going to play two good sermons, uh, one from, I think, Jeremy Rohde of uh, Faith uh, Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, and one from uh, William Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. Good, Christ-centered, cross-focused, gr- go- just fantastic preaching, and uh, gospel is in there, clear as a bell, and it's for you, it's for me, and uh, this is exactly the balm that my soul needs. So, anyway, uh, with that, we're going to uh, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we're doing a William Tapley update, I, I need to play this. Sing along. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the The end end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Bum, bum, bum. All right. Well, let me uh, kill the. By the way, I, I'm I'm looking at my notes here. I, I had that wrong. The uh, when we get to the Harold Camping stuff, the articles that I'm going to begin reading today are uh, uh, written by Robert Godfrey. Sorry, my apologies to Robert Godfrey and J.I. Packer. I messed that up. But anyway, um, <clears throat> William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times. I still have no. Well, 
I'm not exactly sure who he's co-profiting with. I actually sent him an email and uh, and asked him the question, and the the response the response I got from him was kind of um, vague. Um, if I read him correctly, I think he thinks he's co-profiting with um, uh, the uh, the Roman Catholic Magisterium. Um, I, but I may be wrong. Anyway, it, it let's just say it was confusing. So um, here's William Tapley. Um, the first video he's made in, in, in just about a month. I mean, it's been that long since we've heard from him, but he has an exciting uh, announcement for us. Uh, so without any further ado, here's w- William Tapley. I am making the incredible announcement on this program that a computer program called Stellarium predicts exactly when the Bible prophecy of a woman clothed with the sun will be fulfilled. Moreover, this prediction coincides exactly with my own previous prophecies that Jesus will return at Armageddon in the fall of 2017. I- okay, so, yeah, you might want to have a chat with Harold Camping uh, there, Mr. Tapley. Fall of 2017. Um, okay, so uh, here it is, 2011. We got six years. Six and a half, really. Uh, um that being the case, you know, make sure you you know take some time to fill out your bucket list and start knocking off those items you know before the fall of 2017 because I mean sounds like we're going to be right in the thick of the, you know whatever the tribulation is that he believes in in the fall of 2017. But so Stellarium, Stellarium. I, I looked this up on the web by the way, and Stellarium is really just kind of one of those online star chart kind of uh, astronomy. Programs. I've got a similar program on my uh, on my iPhone that you know that you know that it's I, it was a Google Stars. I forget the name of it. Anyway, you hold your iPhone up to the sky and it, and it actually shows you uh, where the constellations are and everything. And um, and it, I don't know how it does it to be honest with you. It's quite impressive. Uh, you know, so if I'm sitting there going, "Where's Jupiter tonight?" You know, I, I pull out my iPhone and I hold it up to the sky and kind of scan the sky and I can see the stars. You know, anyway. Is that too nerdy? Um, probably, probably. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I, sometimes I wonder because you know I do things. I I do things that are very nerdy. Anyway, but I don't have the ability to go forward in time. So the Stellarium program that's on the internet allows you to actually fast forward and 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 say you want to know what the the constellations are going to look like next week or a year and a month from now you you, you type in the the date and, and and your general coordinates as to where you're located on the planet and you know it'll it'll move the stars around and say this is what the sky is going to look like at, on this date at this time in your neck of the woods and so apparently that's what William Tapley's been up to with the Stellarium program and he's been trying to figure out when the prophecy of the woman clothed with the sun is going to be fulfilled, and he's narrowed it down to a specific date thanks to the Stellarium program. Let's get the details. I discovered this program called Stellarium somewhat by accident last week when I watched three videos which claimed that this great sign of the woman clothed with the sun will be fulfilled this fall when the comet Elenin passes by Earth. Of course, I realized right away that this was impossible because this great sign occurs just before Armageddon. Right, yeah. I missed that. Um, so, yeah. I, In fact, I didn't even know there was a comet coming in, in, in this fall. 
It is a warning to the Antichrist. As Daniel says, the Antichrist will be troubled by tidings out of the East. And that is what this great sign refers to. Let's take a look first of all at this prophecy as found in the book of Revelation. Revelation 12 verse 1. And there appeared a great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now the woman, of course, represents Mary, but also the church. And this prophecy has more than one fulfillment, I am sure. For example, it was partially fulfilled at Fatima when Mary appeared to the three shepherd children. And Revelation 12, verse 2. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, man. Pray for William Tapley, will you? And she, being with child, now the child, of course, symbolizes Jesus, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. Now, since she is delivering the child in pain, the woman in this case symbolizes the church. When this prophecy is fulfilled, all four aspects will be in evidence. First, the woman will be clothed with the sun. She will have the moon under her feet. She will have a crown of 12 stars, and she will be in childbirth. Now let's look at the Stellarium program for this coming fall on September 29th. Yeah, please, I can't wait to see how this is uh, fulfilled. Because that is when the videos I watched claimed that this prophecy will be fulfilled. Yeah, I, I, I really do hope that you, you um, put those false prophets to rest using the Stellarium program. Here we have the constellation Virgo, which appropriately symbolizes the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, so far, this could be the woman clothed with the sun. Now, just so you know uh, what he's doing here at the moment, um, he's got the Stellarium program. And if you've ever seen any astronomy programs where um, they have, like, muted drawings of the uh, – of you know, the characters that are supposed to be in the constellations, they're kind of like cartoonish characters. Yeah, that's what's uh, that's what we're looking at here. So he's pointing to uh, uh, Virgo, who apparently is the Virgin Mary. And the artwork is not too great because her right hip is up here, whereas actually her right hip, according to the stars, is down here. Yeah. So he, I'm glad he's taking the time to correct the Stellarium program and their depiction of the artwork of the different constellation characters oh man and her left hip is way down here quite a ways distance from her left hip in the artwork and the artwork shows virgo in a reclining position whereas actually she is in a birth position with her hip bent and her knee bent the date is 2011 in September 29th, and this is the date given by the three videos which claim that the constellation on this date symbolizes the woman clothed with the sun. However, there are quite a few discrepancies. I'm sure you're going to point those out to us. By the way, you know, so what's happening here is that the um, <clears throat> Virgo, the Virgin, uh, who supposedly symbolizes the Virgin Mary, has got you know you can see the sun you know our you know the star in the center of our solar system 
um, just right over her uh, her left shoulder. So this is supposed to be the fulfillment of prophecy of the um, woman clothed with the sun. First of all, the moon is not really under her feet, but rather off to the side. Secondly, the planets, which would symbolize the birth of Jesus, are Saturn and Venus. This does not make sense because the woman should not be giving birth to twins. (laughs) Okay. Also, the stars are above her hip joint. In other words, they are still within her womb. If the woman clothed with the sun were giving birth to either Saturn or Venus, they should be located down here below the hip joint. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that this was going to be a birthing program. (laughs) Also, Saturn is not a good symbol for Jesus because Saturn was a father god symbol, the father of Jupiter. And Venus, of course, is feminine. So neither one of these planets symbolizes Jesus. Now we do see the woman clothed with the sun because the sun is located at her left shoulder. But the real problem, the biggest problem with this configuration is that the woman has no crown of 12 stars. Now if I move Virgo a little bit to the left here, so he's got video. He's he's got his cursor moving video to the left to see if there's twelve stars above the head of the Virgin Virgo. You can see that above her head is the constellation Leo, which is where it's normally located. <laughs> I don't think that's changed in the past few millennia. Now Leo has only nine stars: one, two, three, four, five. Six. Yeah, I feel like I need to get the uh, the count from Sesame Street. You know, he's counting the stars. That's eight stars. <laughs> Seven, eight, nine. Therefore, this configuration cannot be the woman clothed with the sun. Of course. And I am not discounting the premise that this prophecy of a woman clothed with the sun will be seen in the constellations. Remember... Oh my goodness, I just realized this. <laughs> okay, you can't, you can't obviously see it on the podcast, but um, William Tapley has redone his backdrop. Normally, uh, when he does his videos, uh, he either has poster board up with... Um, uh, with you know, with, you know, copy and pasted and, you know, cut out verses, you know, that he wants to point people to, or he does it in front of a curtain or something like that. And I am not kidding. Um, behind him, he has a backdrop that looks like it's a zebra print uh, with some kind of African design. It makes me wonder if William Tapley heard the episode that we did where one of the the listeners to Fighting for the Faith claimed that William Tapley sounded like Marlon Perkins. Um, so this is uh, William Tapley's most modern uh, Marlon Perkins-esque backdrop that I have ever seen. I feel like I'm watching an episode of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom without the wild animals. When Jesus came the first time, his coming was announced in the stars, the star of Bethlehem, and the three kings from the east recognized the sign 
That's why the Bible calls them wise men. There's no reason why it won't be the same for Jesus coming at Armageddon. And the amazing thing is that we can see the stars that will announce his coming six years ahead of time due to this amazing computer program called Stellarium. Now let's take a look at September 23rd, 2017, because I believe this will show the fulfillment of the Bible prophecy. Once again, we see the constellation Virgo symbolizing the Blessed Virgin Mary and the woman clothed with the sun. It's just like the same day six years earlier. Except now the year is 2017. Aha. Uh -huh. The month is still September. Yeah. But the date is the 23rd. Okay. Now we will find all four requirements fulfilled. First of all, the moon is definitely under her feet. Yeah. It's not off to the side as we saw before. Right. Secondly, she is giving birth to Jupiter. Jupiter is located below her hips. And Jupiter is a much better symbol for Jesus because Jupiter was a god who was the son of Saturn. Thirdly, the woman is still clothed with a sun, as we see here. It's yeah, by yeah. her left shoulder. Yeah, I'm with you. But the clincher is that she now has a crown of 12 stars. Now, if we move... Um, what? Move Virgo to the left again, as we did before. We see that above her head is still the constellation Leo. Which still only has nine stars. With its nine stars. But now we also have Venus, Mars, and Mercury. For um, <clears throat> you know, Not that I'm being picky or anything, but aren't Venus, Mars, and Mercury planets, not stars? A total of 12 stars. In other words, all four requirements are met with the constellation Virgo and the constellation Leo on this date of 2017, September 23rd. So there you have it. The uh, Stellarium program has predicted this so prophetically, too. This is the date that the Antichrist will see this sign in the sky. These are the bad tidings which upset him. He will see the woman clothed with the sun. The fulfillment of the prophecy of the woman clothed with the sun on September 23rd, 2017, as shown in this computer program, Stellarium, is truly amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you know, um, not that I want to quibble with words or anything like that, but amazing is not quite the word that I would um, use. Um, wow. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Uh, we'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous... So that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Uh, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Christ-centered gospel Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. Beware of people predicting dates by symbolizing and allegorizing things in the Bible. Ugh, man. Pray for William Tapley. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, we truly could use the help. And the way you can do so is by visiting our website, www.fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but it is a lot to us. And, uh, and of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, for those of you who are crew members, who are currently crew members, I have an announcement tomorrow on tomorrow's program. I have an announcement. Did I mention that I had an announcement on tomorrow's program? Uh, regarding uh, what crew membership benefits there are, uh, you know, members. Uh, those of you who are members of our crew, there are benefits, and we've kind of reworked everything, and we're we're ready to announce that tomorrow. So uh, stay tuned. All right, moving along here. Um, you know what? I'm not going to play any music for this. Uh, it kinda, it's kind of in the same vein as the um, William Tapley thing, but uh, Robert Godfrey, W. Robert Godfrey from uh, Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, from their blog entitled Valiant for Truth, has uh, published a series of articles regarding Harold Camping. And I'm going to read these, because here's the deal. The, uh, the the Campingites, I'm not sure if that's how you uh, how you correctly refer to them, um, they're, they're very aggressive in their uh, going out and warning everybody that the rapture is supposed to take place on May 21st of this year. We have right now a, a, a month... And 10 days as of the time this is airing on Pirate Christian Radio. But, of course, you know, many of you are listening via podcast. So, um, in fact, some of you right now are listening and the date's already gone. It's it's, It's passed. But for those of you who are listening prior to the May 21st date, you've downloaded the podcast, you're listening to this program, and uh, you know somebody who's a friend or loved one in the in the camping uh, uh, crowd, um, man, there are some bad doctrine. Uh, there's some really bad doctrine uh, associated with the Harold Camping. But um, I, before I even read uh, uh, Robert Godfrey's uh, first article on this, let me give you a strategy, a strategium, uh, if you would, uh, a strategery, if if you would, if uh, in dealing with and approaching your confused loved one, friend, uh, co-worker, whoever it is that you know that's a, that is buying into all of this stuff. 
My suggestion is you basically approach them and say, listen, I'm not going to argue Bible with you right now, okay? Um, I am absolutely confident that Harold Camping does not know when Jesus is going to return, rapture or no rapture, That's you know, that, that doesn't matter. And that being the case, I want you to know that I love you and I'm going to be here for you on May 22nd. And what I mean by that is, is that... Um, you know, it's gonna May twenty second is gonna be a very very bad day for you. Uh, when when you know May twenty first disappears across the international dateline, and there is no May twenty first anymore anywhere on planet Earth, um, the rapture still will not have taken place. And uh, when when that occurs, um, you, there's a you're gonna be tempted to chuck Christianity out. And the problem isn't Christianity and what the Bible teaches. The problem is Harold Camping and his misuse and misapplication of the Bible in coming up with this date. So therefore, I, I, I know you want to try to convince me that he's coming on May 21st, but I know my Bible well enough to know that no one knows the day or the hour. And don't sit there and try to tell me from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that if I don't believe that the rapture is going to take place on the 21st, that I'm going to be left behind. That's a false gospel. And so, but I'm, I just want you to know I'm praying for you, and on May 22nd, I'm not going to scold you. On May 22nd, I'm not going to tell you I told you so. I am going to be here for you to help you get through the obvious depression that you're going to feel, the, the, the feeling that you've been deceived, because on that day, your eyes are going to be open, open to the fact that Harold Camping doesn't know what he's doing when it comes to handling God's Word. And as a good friend or brother in Christ, I'm here to help you pick up the pieces and to help you walk through the passages so that you understand what went wrong and why Harold Camping isn't teaching the truth. And then you basically the idea is be there for that person and, and basically let them know that you're going to be there to help them pick up the pieces. That, I think, is the, is the best thing to do because there's going to be a lot of very despondent and depressed, sad and disillusioned Campingites on May 21st, especially given the amount of money, time, and volunteer effort and hours that have gone into getting the word out uh, that May 21st is the day of the rapture. And uh, as a result of it, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who are, they're just going to be devastated. And the temptation for them on that day is to throw Christianity out the window. And the problem is, is that they haven't been taught Christianity, but they think that they have. They haven't been correctly taught the Bible, but they think that they have. And all of that is going to come crashing down on May 22nd. And uh, may, I, may I strongly urge you to be there for them and let them know that you're going to be there for them, that you're praying for them. And when May 22nd comes around, reach out to them and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry that things didn't work out. I knew, you know, don't say I told you so. I'm sorry that things didn't work out regarding the rapture. How can I help you? Go with it that that way, and we might be able to snatch some of the fo- uh, the campingites from the fire because it's it it is it really really uh, bites uh, having experiencing that kind of deception and disillusionment. So. Anyway, uh, Dr. Godfrey's article is entitled The End of the World According to Harold Camping. This is part one. Uh, Dr. Godfrey writes, he says, If you were to drive the freeways of Southern California, you, you would see from time to time billboards proclaiming the Judgment Day on May 21, 2011, and declaring that the Bible guarantees it. 
Presumably, these billboards may be seen in many other parts of the country as well. Who is responsible for these signs, and what do they really mean theologically? The signs have been placed by Harold Camping and his followers to warn people that the end is at hand. To understand these signs, we must know something of the history as well as the theology of Harold Camping. I am in somewhat a distinctive position to write on this subject since I first met Camping in the late 1950s. I learned a great deal from him then, and so I find what follows a very sad story. I pray for him that the Lord will deliver him from the serious errors into which he has fallen. While a high school student in Alameda, California, I began to attend the Alameda Christian Reformed Church. It was there that I was converted through the influence of a number of people in the congregation, including Harold Camping. At that time, he was an elder in the congregation and taught uh, the Bible lessons for the high school youth group. He was a conservative, traditional adherent to uh, of, of Christian Reform of the Christian Reformed Church, and would remain so for many years. In those days, the Christian Reformed Church was a strongly ethnic denomination, and the congregation in Alameda was almost entirely Dutch in background. The CRC was also still strictly Reformed, interpreting the Bible in light of the Church's confessional standards, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. Camping strongly embraced and taught the doctrine and the piety of the CRC in which he had been raised. The Christian Reformed Church, like all Presbyterian and Reformed churches, also stressed the importance of a careful and thoroughly educated ministry. The Church certainly taught the Reformation doctrine that the Scripture is clear in its teaching of the message of salvation. At the same time, it also recognized that the Lord had given His Church pastors to open the Word of God and preserve the Church in truth. See Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 14. The faithful preaching of these pastors was a means of grace by which the saints were built up. For this vital calling, ministries were educated to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, to understand how to read the various genres in the Bible, and how to interpret each part of the Bible in light of the whole. The best handling of the scriptures required excellent education. It still does, by the way. Camping was a bright and studious man who had been educated as an engineer. In the 1950s, he owned a very successful construction company which built churches as well as other significant buildings. This educational background is critical to understanding camping. His education was not in the liberal arts or theology. He had not been prepared to read literature or ancient texts. He knew no Greek or Hebrew. He was not formally introduced to the study of theology. His reading of the Bible as it evolved over the decades reflected his training in engineering. He reads the Bible like a mathematical or a scientific textbook. Camping developed a good as Camping developed as a good businessman his construction company and then sold it. With the money he began to build the Christian radio network called Family Radio. This network was very much his own property, and his skill developed Family Radio into a group of stations spread throughout the country. Family Radio appealed to many Christians through its programming of Christian music, Bible reading, Bible lessons, and messages from various pastors and conference speakers. The teaching was basically Reformed, and Camping sought to have as many recordings of Reformed speakers as possible. Camping himself had a regular program of his own called Open Forum. 
During this program, he invited people to call in with questions about the Bible and theology. He promoted a Reformed approach to the Bible and especially confronted and refuted dispensational, Pentecostal, Arminian theologies. He also had a broad and detailed knowledge of the Bible, which he used to very good effect in answering questions. He was at one time a most effective and influential promoter of Reformed theology and won many listeners to the Reformed cause. After camping began to work full-time with Family Radio, he spent much time studying the Bible. His knowledge of Bible verses is impressive indeed, but his study of the Bible was undertaken in isolation from other Christians and theologians. He adopted a proud individualism. He did not really learn from Bible scholars. He studied the Bible in isolation from the church and the consensus of the faithful. As a result, his understanding of the Bible became more and more idiosyncratic. No one could help, direct, or restrain him. He was really an autodictact, that is, someone who teaches himself. He never really submitted his ideas to be challenged and improved by others. He was truly his own teacher. He had repeatedly said that he would be glad to change his view if he is shown that he is wrong from the Bible, but this humble statement covers a very arrogant attitude because no one can ever show him that he is wrong. He alone really understands the Bible. Camping's reading of the Bible led him to a curiously self-contradictory method which is at sometimes excessively literal and at other times widely allegorical. As an engineer, he has had a particular interest in the numbers in the Bible. It is this interest that has led him to reach conclusions about the date of the end of the world. His first date was 1994, and he wrote a book showing the method by which he reached this date and to show how certain it was. Since then, he has come to certain conclusions about several other dates, some of which he made public and some of which he did not. His repeated failures in calculating the end of the world have not led to repentance on his part or any basic revision of his method of interpreting the Bible. Camping's literalism shows itself in his taking Bible verses out of context and reading into them a meaning that their authors and God never intended. For example, he quotes Amos chapter 3, verse 7, that says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants the prophets. Camping claims that this, this verse proves that God shows in the Bible the exact date of Christ's return. But in context... It is clear that Amos is writing of God's revelation of his judgment against the faithlessness of Israel through his prophets. Amos is writing of God's revealing a specific message to his prophets. Camping turns this into a statement that God reveals all his secrets, including the secret of the day of the end of the world in the Bible. Yet it must be obvious to everyone that there are many of God's secrets that are not revealed in the Bible. Camping has seriously abused this text. Consider further his use of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that says, quote, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this uh, one thing, that one day is with the Lord as, as, as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Camping insists that this is true in the most literal way, so that the seven days of Genesis 7, verse 4, must be exactly 7,000 years. Peter's point is to show that God is not slow in keeping his promises. Peter is not teaching that every place in the Bible where we find reference to a day 
it actually means 1,000 years. Notice also that Peter does not say that one day is 1,000 years exactly. Camping has added exactly. Also, Genesis 7 verse 4 speaks of rain falling 40 days. Does this mean that judgment will last 40,000 years? Jesus may, of course, return on May 21st, 2011. Since we do not and cannot know when he is returning, May 21st is a possibility. But if Jesus does come then, Harold Camping will have will not have calculated it correctly. Quote, watch therefore, for ye know not the hour your Lord doth come. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Apparently these verses are not supposed are not to be understood literally, according to Camping. Camping's allegorical interpretation of these verses makes them mean the opposite of what they say. While often taking a literalistic approach to numbers, he also takes a very allegorical approach to many texts. This approach seems to have developed gradually, driven in part by his eagerness to refute Pentecostals. Although my memory of camping in the 1950s is that he used the Revised Standard Version, in later years he's become a passionate advocate for the King James Version. Absolute confidence in the KJV probably reflects the need for a Bible version which is so reliable that he can conveniently do without a knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. Accepting the KJV requires an acceptance of the long ending of Mark's gospel, where we read Jesus saying, And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Shall they cast out devils? They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink many uh, deadly things, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover." To avoid the obvious ways in which Pentecostals could use Mark 16, Camping developed an interpretive method in which the apparently literal becomes allegorical or symbolic. Sounds like William Tapley. He appealed to Jesus' statement about teaching in parables, quote, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear. But without a parable spake he not unto them, and when they were alone he expounded all things to his disciples. While Jesus clearly is speaking about limited situations and people where he spoke in parables, Camping turned Jesus' statement into a universal principle. By turning everything literal into symbols, Camping can make the Bible say almost anything. For example, if Jesus always speaks in parables and said that he would be in the grave for three days, does that mean that he would actually be in the grave for 3,000 years? But Camping's allegorical method allows him to conclude that Mark 16 does not say that the disciples can handle literal snakes. Rather, it says that they can oppose Satan, that old serpent. Camping's knowledge of the Bible verses and confidence led many to follow him as their only leader and teacher. He had become their guru. It is interesting how often people seek someone to follow unquestioningly. This reality has been called the... Oh man, Fuhrer's sure. <laughs> I can't pronounce this word. Fuhrer prism, uh, prinzip, or or the leader principle. Whether a false prophet or a political leader or an intellectual authority, many people want someone whom they can follow simply and blindly. For some listeners to Family Radio, camping has become their leader or their guru. Sadly, instead of promoting confidence in the authority of the Bible, camping has inculcated confidence in himself. One of his followers recently said that if Jesus does not return on May 21st, it will show that the Bible is wrong. Oh, man. 
For many years, Camping taught an adult Sunday school class at the Alameda Christian Reformed Church. This class attracted a number of listeners from Family Radio who did not become integrated into the life of the church. They looked to Camping to tell them what to accept and not to accept in the teaching and preaching of the pastor. The elders of the church finally decided that this situation needed to be remedied and stated that in the coming year, Camping would not teach an adult Sunday school class. This decision led to Camping and his followers leaving the Alameda Christian uh, Reformed Church and forming their own Reformed Bible Church. The formation of this new congregation may not have been schismatic in and of itself. Initially, they sought a new denomination with which to affiliate and sought a pastor. Camping did not believe that he should be the pastor. The new congregation never found a pastor or a new denomination. However, Camping had begun a study group on the Heidelberg Catechism, and he proceeded to improve or revise the Catechism. Once again, his arrogant individualism asserted itself. Not surprisingly, no Reformed denomination would accept Camping and his congregation on the basis of his revised catechism. At this point, he had become schismatic. So that's uh, Robert Godfrey's uh, series of articles. I read part one, two, and three all together uh, on Harold Camping. Very, very interesting, very, very sad and like I said, be there and pray for the uh, the folks who buy into Harold Camping's uh, predictions regarding the end. There, it's not the camp. It, it's not that the Bible's wrong. It's that camping is wrong. So, and yeah, I'm. Let's just say I'm really confident we're going to be around for May twenty second. Why? Well, because you know, the third eagle of the apocalypse said that it's not going to be until twenty seventeen. <laughs> All right, moving along. At the beginning of the program, I uh, mentioned that um, James McDonald, uh, he's at the Harvest, I think Harvest Christian Fellowship up in Aurora, Illinois, and it's a sh- suburb of Chicago. Um, the more I'm learning about him, the uh, well, let's just say the the more encouraged I'm becoming. And uh, before I play uh, Matt Chandler and Stephen Furtick and their exchange. I want to play for you um, something that was asked of uh, James McDonald, uh, which was put out, a video that was put out by the Gospel Coalition. And I liked this answer and uh, worth passing along. But uh, here's here's James McDonald talking about the need to preach the gospel in every sermon. Listen to this. Well, I remember one time a few years ago, I had uh, a woman in my church, I think I was preaching on something in Titus, and uh, it was about roles, as I remember it, and uh, she was a good woman, you know, and she wrote me a letter and just said, Pastor, she says, I could have heard that message in a mosque. Well, mm-hmm. that wasn't exactly true, because I don't mm-hmm. think they do expository teaching she in a mosque. She couldn't have heard it in a mosque. She wouldn't wrong. let her go. <laughs> now, that was Driscoll. Yeah, just so you know, that was Mark Driscoll. He's part of this little round, literally round table conversation. <laughs> I don't think she attended a lot of mosques, but I got her point. Her point was, I spent a lot of teaching on the family, but I didn't get to the cross. And I, I was, that's probably 15 years ago now, but it was a turning point in my ministry. And I do share the gospel every week, regardless of the passage. And there's no passage of scripture where you can't get to the good news of Christ. And I do that in every message. I the same thing. Happened. Wow. Now, I got to tell you that when I hear a pastor or a Christian leader make a statement like that, I go, oh, well, hello, hello. 
<laughs> this is good. This, no, this is really good. And I, I had an exchange with somebody on Twitter over the weekend, and I asked him if this was the case because the uh, the person that I was talking with on Twitter uh, is is uh, listens to uh, a lot of uh, James McDonald's sermons and really enjoys them, and asked if I had, if I knew anything about James McDonald. And the reality is, I up until recently I could I didn't know much, and uh, but the more I'm listening to uh, James McDonald, the more I'm liking. Uh, you you show me a pastor who makes a point of preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins in every sermon, regardless of the text. And uh, I don't care what denomination you're in, you've got my respect. Um, yeah, the, and so this is one of those things where it's like, okay, cool. This is this helps me understand a little bit about James McDonald, and his church was the one that hosted that uh, conference that I wasn't able to attend. <clears throat> And, uh, and by the way, um, you know, don't, there's no need to think it's a nefarious thing. I, you know, although um, let's just just to say that uh, when I when when I pushed for explanation, the explanation was a little flat. But uh, <laughs> the point is, is this is that uh, it sounds to me like James McDonald and uh, those guys had things well under control and uh, and uh, m- maybe my presence would have been a distraction. It's absolutely possible that's the case. And no matter how you slice it, I didn't get to go to the Elephant in the Room conference. But the, the DVDs are, are going to be coming out shortly, and so um, hopefully I'll be able to get a copy of those. But um, the uh, Harvest Bible Chapel, that's the name of, the, of uh, James McDonald's congregation, Harvest Bible Chapel, and they're in Aurora, Illinois, they put out a uh, kind of a teaser video. And, uh, you know, and they have a couple of teaser videos that are out there right now. And the first one that uh, I'm going to play any audio from is an exchange between Chandler and Furtick. And um, you you all know from listening to past episodes of Fighting for the Faith that I have a deep and profound respect for Matt Chandler, too. Why? Because he preaches the gospel. He makes a point of preaching the gospel, and he cares about doctrine. Chandler is not one of these guys who tries to build his church uh you know you know put uh put people in the seats and fill the uh the auditorium by cutting corners and uh, and and pitting evangelism against sound doctrine and this is something that Chandler and Furtick discuss head to head at this uh, elephant in the room conference and what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the audio from their exchange and I'm going to fill in the missing video that they're referencing so that you can hear what they're talking about and so that you can basically hear uh, basically get the point with everything in context and so and I don't think Furtick comes out looking too good here but uh uh, here's uh, Chandler and Furtick talking about uh, you know the you know whether or not doctrine is is an obstacle to evangelism. Here we go. But here would be my like I guess so. You kind of blow up on the scene, and and so I didn't know a lot about y'all. I'm here in Furtick. We talked on the phone years ago, right? You, I mean, you had just opened the door. Like six thousand people came that weekend. All right, out of nowhere, no mailers, no nothing. Just Holy Spirit drew them in, and and so we talked, and then we had one backstage kind of chit chat at catalyst and and then um and then all of a sudden you're everywhere man i mean rick warren's you know having you you know do the intro to his new book or whatever having you at his house you know um <laughs> took his wife on a date i mean i've never been i've never been i've never been to rick warren's house either that's james mcdonald saying he's never been to rick warren's house but this is chandler right now talking face to face with uh, furtick 
Furtick looks a bit uncomfortable. Um, Mark, you've been to Rick Warren's sure. house? I've been to his office. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying right there. Greg's no, probably uh, been to his house. No, just to his office. So is this... Yeah. Am, am, am wow. I, is my time getting eaten away here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in the end... But so here's what I do, Stephen. And here's, like, here's a legitimate concern. Um, so I'm, I'm Googling you. I, I, I just want to know what you're about. I, the Reformed community is not a big fan uh, to be straight with you, not a big fan of, of you. Of anything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they love Calvin. <laughs> so, um, so, I'm, so I'm. Wait, wait, Platt didn't. And uh, <laughs> so, so I come across this video of you, and and granted, I I know I, I don't want to be judged by things I've said ten years ago or whatever, yeah. but but of you rebuking your crowd for wanting depth, and and your defense of that yeah. was that we've seen a thousand people saved here. So from okay, now I'm going to play the audio from that video. The video you can find it um, on YouTube. And the name of it is Pitting Evangelism Against Discipleship. Pitting Evangelism Against Discipleship. And, you know, I should warn you all kind of ahead of time that uh, Furtick is uh, kind of an angry, in-your-face kind of guy in this video. But uh, for the sake of full disclosure, I'm the one who put this video on YouTube, just so you know. It made it into the Museum of Idolatry. Here we go. When you showed up to church this morning, did you show up with a bless me, feed me, make me fatter preacher? I don't intend to do a thing you say, but I'm going to listen to you. And if you dadgum say one thing I don't like, I promise I'll cross my arms and cross my eyes at you the rest of the sermon. Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of pot-bellied Christians waiting to shove their spiritual food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You might even take notes, but you take notes so you can argue with them with your roommate after church and how I don't really believe in all that. Yeah, but if we ever start turning in this front row Pharisee crowd, I don't think the teaching's deep enough. I would like a little more hermeneutical explanation on the original languages in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Jesus says, shut up. Help somebody. Bless somebody. Heal somebody. Serve somebody. Pray for somebody. Why don't you do something? Why don't you bring a lost friend to church with you next week? Watch Jesus change their life, and then you won't be worried about how loud the music was. You'll just hope that they meet Jesus. That'll be the only thing you can think about. It'll consume you. But some people say, I wish you wouldn't preach all these topical sermons. I wish you'd just preach verse by verse through the book of Galatians so that we can understand the full propitiation of the justification by faith. No, here's what you want to do. You want to pull your fat butt up to the table and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And some of y'all even double dip because you go to three churches, you don't serve at any, and you're fat and you need to get on a treadmill and do something for Jesus. I promise the encouraging part is coming. And I'm not normally this mean but it's, it's my wife's out of town, and i got to take it out on somebody. <clears throat> so Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus is always calling up to the front the people that religion pushes to the back of the bus. Read through the Gospels. Jesus does not give the place of honor to the seminary graduates. He calls out the prostitute, says, follow me. Ask the fishermen who became his disciples, They did not have their rabbinical degrees. They were not from the highest pedigree in Jerusalem. They were business owners. Jesus said, you, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Ask David. He was tending sheep. The prophet Samuel comes to anoint the king of Israel. He knew that it was one of Jesse's sons. Nobody even thought about David in that moment. 
He was just a sheep tender, the youngest one. Surely it can't be David. Oh, yeah, it's David. Because Jesus has the habit of calling out the one that everybody else has overlooked. I want Elevation Church to be a church for the overlooked, for the unloved. Not for us to have as many different varieties of Bible studies. We got Beth Moore and Kay Arthur and Joyce Meyer. No. You know what we got? We got Jesus. We preach him. We preach so that people can come to faith in Christ, and we want them to get in a small group and serve so that other people can meet Christ. If you know Jesus, I am sorry to break it to you. This church is not for you. Yeah, but I just gave my life to Christ last week at Elevation. Last week was the last week that Elevation Church existed for you. You're in the army now. We do one thing. We preach Jesus so people far from God can know Jesus. And then we train them up so that others can know Jesus. It's called kingdom multiplication. It's what Elevation Church is all about. And over 500 people have given their lives to Jesus for the first time in this church in the last five months. That's over 100 per month. If that doesn't get you excited and you need the doctrines of grace as defined by John Calvin to excite you, you in the wrong church. Let me get a phone book. There are 720 churches in Charlotte. I'm sure we can find one where you can stuff your face until you're so obese spiritually that you can't even move. This is a church that wants to get you on the field, playing the game, changing lives, looking for an opportunity to impact. It's what we're all about. We're focused like a laser. We're not perfect, but we know what we came to do. Luke 19.10, seek and save that which is lost. It's the mission of Jesus. It's the mission of Elevation Church. And may we never become a church of front row spectators who judge the deeds being done more than we care about the people that Jesus wants to save. Okay, all right. So that was uh, Stephen Furtick, and that's what Chandler is discussing here. And you know, this is one of the elephants in the room, if you would. And uh, let's see how well uh, Furtick uh, is able to, well, address the elephant in the room, see if he even recognizes it. So here's Chandler now discussing this video, what Furtick said, with Furtick. From your own mouth. And the pulpit drives the church. Yeah. I mean, people can say whatever they want, but right. the pulpit drives the church. You're in front of your congregation saying, you know, you guys want to talk about reform. You guys want to talk about this doctrine, yeah, yeah, this yeah. doctrine, this doctrine. Yeah. Well, I want you to know we baptize a thousand people. You can go somewhere else for that. And everybody cheers. And I'm heartbroken going, yeah. you just did it, bro. You, you literally just said evangelism and doctrine yeah. are, are exclusive. Yeah. And, and so that's the kind of thing for me that I look at that and I'm going, oh, Stephen. You watch the whole sermon or the No, that's what I'm saying. I'll, and that's what I'm saying. By the way, I watched the whole sermon. It's unfair because you, you judge by sound bites, right? Yeah, so sure. that's what I saw. Well, the whole sermon was online. You should watch the whole thing. It's pretty excellent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because in that context, you're in Dallas. I'm in Charlotte. Our cities are very similar. We have a lot of people. Church on every corner. A form of godliness. Deny the power, power thereof. God. Dead, dry religion. Ezekiel 37. Valley of dry bones. We're dealing with a lot of that. And so to be, and you know this very well, sometimes I have to be hyperbolic. And sure. I watched that clip too. And man, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was, I remember it was actually the third service of the day and the tone was off and was very angry. However, I like it, angry. It does make me angry to think about how many people are cycling through my church <laughs> as one out of four churches that they attend. You know, they go to this one because they like the children's ministry. This one because their friends go there. This one because the worship's hot. And so sometimes, yes, there is a a hyperbolic sense in which I will say, if all you want to do is go deeper, and what you mean by deeper is 
give me abstract theoretical truth that is so lofty and so disconnected that I don't have to do anything about it. Just confuse the heck out of me so that I won't have to go home and treat my wife any better or so that I won't have to step across the street. and re- Again, I mean, got to pause here. Just listening to Furtick. I don't think he's really addressing the issue because the Bible doesn't teach us to teach abstract theory that has no application in the real world. Biblical doctrine, true biblical doctrine, doesn't operate that way. The reality of the fact is even the doctrine of the Trinity is going to impact your life. It really is. And so you're to go deeper in the sense that you're supposed to preach the full counsel of the Word of God. And God's Word does transform and renew our minds. And it's God's Word is the means by which God sanctifies us in many, many ways. And so the thing is, is that, you know, let's put this back in context. Furtick is one of these seeker-driven topical guys, and he rips verses out of context and, and you know, does these life-tip-type sermons. And when the c- complaint comes to him and, sa- and when somebody says, you know, the, the, you really need to go deeper into God's Word, this is his comeback. And, it's pa- and this is not just his comeback. This is Perry Noble's comeback. This is... Uh, Mark Beeson's comebacks. All, all, all of these seeker-driven guys basically say that you're you are selfish if you come to church expecting to be fed. But the reality is, is that it is God's word that sanctifies us and transforms us, and it's the job of the pastor to preach the full counsel of the word of God. So here, even verdict, he's backpedaling, trying to put the best light on really a video that that doesn't cast him in the best light and even though he's doing his best here i think he's still missing the elephant in the room my neighbors yes i'm going to exaggerate my point to say get out of here if that's what you want and that was the context of that clip in the sermon but you don't see the rest of that in the five minute clip also to that let me say one more thing now now he's he's furtick is going to kind of do a tit for tat here with uh, chandler but listen in there is for me um uh, there's something I heard you say one time, I think maybe at Desiring God, and I was up, this was right before I called you, the last time that I called you, and you're so kind to listen to my feedback. Um, Critics rebuked me several times. Well, I called him Once. because I was listening to this thing, and you were, you were talking about um, the nightmare that is Dallas, and you said, here's what I'm dealing with, and the crowd went nuts. This was total red meat for that particular crowd. Now, I'm going I'm to play the Chandler uh, video so you can hear it. Uh, the, the name of it is Irrelevant Silly Myths. You can go to YouTube.com, and it is by, it's put out by the Desiring God guys. And so if you look up Matt Chandler, Irrelevant Silly Myths, you will find this video. Let me play for you the audio from this video because I think uh, Chandler makes a great point in this video. Here we go. Avoid silly myths, but... Train your people in godliness. Now, the reason I say this is complex is because you can take one idea and teach it in such a way that's irreverent and silly, or take one idea and teach it in such a way that leads to godliness. Let me give you an example. So we're in a recession. All right, I think they've officially declared that. And, and so he, here's the nightmare that's Dallas, okay? All over Dallas, creative teams get together, and they go, we're going to, you know, we've got ourselves a recession here. We want to talk about uh, debt. 
going to teach our people about debt. And so we've entitled the series, Debt is Dumb. All right? So here's what I need. Worship guy, go write me a song on Debt is Dumb. All right? Communication team, I need you to draw up something that after they leave here, they'll continually remember Debt is Dumb. I've written a sermon. Here's why debt is dumb. Debt is dumb because it puts stress on your marriage. Debt is dumb because it puts stress on your happiness. And debt is dumb because if you get into too much of it, somebody's going to come take your car and house, then you'll be homeless. Break, and everybody goes. Then on Sunday morning, somebody walks up on stage, and, and they lead in the song, all right? If you have $4 and you spent 7 that's dumb. All right, they, they lead their song. And, and then the pastor walks up on stage, and he gets behind, probably not a pulpit, probably a um, stool, and, and says... I'm not capping anybody, I'm just saying that's it's very popular. And and they do the sermon. Hey, hey guys, if listen, here's the problem with debt. When you got a lot of debt, you're not happy. Are you guys happy? Of course you're not happy. You know why you're not happy? Because you have debt. Right? Point, point two is your marriage difficult. Let me tell you why your marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult because you got debt. Okay, I'm gonna interrupt Chandler here for a minute. This is I mean, this is a poignant characterization, you know, of the the typical seeker-driven sermon. And we review these here day in and day out here at Fighting for the Faith. And I don't think Chandler's characterization here is overstepping reality over and over and over again. Just listen to the sermon archives here at Fighting for the Faith over and over again. You've got these seeker-driven guys in the name of being seeker-driven and, and meeting people's felt needs, watering God's word down and coming up with these banal, out-of-context, you know, ver, you know, verse strings, you know, uh, half a sentence here from this chapter and verse of the Bible, half a sentence from a different translation, maybe the message paraphrase of and And all of these are, you know, to to address the felt needs of the seeker because that proves to them that you care about them and that's how evangelism is done by completely watering down the sermon time and turning it into this silly kind of stuff. I don't think Chandler is speaking out of turn here. I think he's he's got his finger on the real problem. Let's listen in as he continues. And when you got dead, it brings all this pressure into your marriage and then, that, then that's what happens. It's bad. And then, and then listen, do you want to be homeless? I don't think you want to be homeless. Do you want to be homeless? Do you want, do you want your mom to drive you around? You're 30 years old, for goodness sake. Is that what you want? Of course you don't. See how, how much God loves you? He's telling you, debt is dumb. Now on your way out tonight, we have a bumper sticker that says debt is dumb. And we have little bracelets so that all week long, you might be reminded that debt is dumb. And our ministry to this community is going to be to let them know that debt is dumb. Father, We're going to do Bleeker's Dead is Dumb song one more time. Stand with me, all right? If you have $4.07, Dead is Dumb, and then you dismiss. Well, that's Christless expounding on nothing. So, okay, now let's see. I'm not against topical preaching as long as it's done exegetically. <laughs> I'm saying that you have an opportunity to take something. Well, how about this? How about we do this? How about we stand in our pulpits and say, by the cross of Christ socially, I have been set free from the sin of arrogant hierarchy seeking and saved to humility and seeking the lower seat. 
that in Christ and his cross materially I have been set free from grasping and finding my identity in things and saved to using God's creation properly and giving away money and things to advance his kingdom further. Okay, you see what happened there? One is training in godliness. The other is irreverent, silly myths. Paul's pleading with Timothy, train your people in godliness, which means the gospel is ever-present. Good doctrine is ever-present. It reveals the former errors. There you go. That's what Chandler said. And let's continue now as Stephen Furtick takes issue with this. So you go. Um, In Dallas, I've got pastors who say, I'm going to preach on debt for four weeks. Hey, worship guy, write me a song. And so the worship guy writes a song, Debt is Dumb. And then the pastor gets up and says, Debt is Dumb. And, then he, and, and, and the crowd's rolling, and it's hysterical. And at the end of it, you say, Why not better? And then you deliver some zinger line that just communicates the essence of the gospel in, in two sentences. And, and, and the crowd goes nuts. And of course your way is better. You know, I've never been in a creative meeting that okay did you hear what he just said of course your way is better but now we're gonna we're going to just throw a red herring out here and avoid the substance of what chandler actually said here we go had anything in common with what you described and what that does to guys who are trying to preach in practical ways and reach people far from god is it makes us look like we're sitting around with no brains, and we're not. We're praying. We're seeking God. We're fasting. I led my church through the New Testament in 30 days. Yeah, uh, the issue, uh, Stephen, is not that the creative teams aren't praying they're not, or they're not fasting or they're not sincere. I would say they're sincerely, really zealously trying to reach the lost. The problem is is that they've bought into a methodology that excuses them from their actual biblical role from their actual biblical duty, and that's to preach the word and preach what accords with godliness, to preach the full counsel of the word of God. And all of this is done in the name of evangelism. So regardless of how much they pray, you know, Mormons pray, Muslims, you know, they pray five times a day. Yeah, it's it's true. It's not a matter of sincerity or whether or not you're praying. It's about what God's Word commands the pastor to be doing. And for whatever reason, Stephen Furtick here seems like he's missed the elephant in the room. New through 30. We just uh, finished a, a fast to begin our, our sixth year of ministry. The, and, and we fasted for 11 days together. And we seek God, and we seek God deeply. And I just don't appreciate the kind of rhetoric that's easy to get a crowd fired up about any more than you would to me, for me to separate evangelism and doctrine when we're just sitting around in a creative room thinking of ridiculous stuff and nothing is taken into account. That we really do care right. about God's right. word in reaching people. Sure. All right, I'm going to jump both in. ways. It is. True. Gonna... All right, so that was just a, a, a teaser taste of uh, what happened at that Elephant in the Room conference. And got to tell you, this, this is the first conference I've seen of its kind where the real issues, the real rubs uh, in the seeker-driven uh, you know, methodologies and what's going on in the seeker-driven churches are being discussed head-on. And uh, so uh, props and uh, props to uh, James McDonald and the folks who uh, pulled off the Elephant in the Room conference and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing and seeing more from what happened there. And uh, 
we'll see what happens. I think uh, you know, I was watching the tw- Twitter stream and watching somebody actually, uh, you know, they had blogged about they had blogged their notes from the conference. And um, and what happened is is that uh, Stephen Furtick actually made a comment to the effect that he he likes reading both Joel Osteen and John Piper and uh, and Driscoll had a zinger of a line. He says reading uh, reading Osteen and Piper is like saying that you're a meat eating vegetarian. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, <laughs> yeah, boy, oh boy. Anyway, so that's uh, what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or it has to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Take a break. We'll be right back with two very good sermons. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two. We're well into it here at Fighting for the Face Sermon Review time. Got a couple of good sermons for you. We're going to begin in uh, at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights. Uh, I'll give you the details here in a second.
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us from Southern California. Uh, from First one from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. Pastor William Swirla presiding. The name of that sermon, in fact, I'll give the name of the second one after, uh, after this uh, first one's done. But the name of the first sermon is... This is actually kind of silly. It's entitled, A Serpent on a Stick. <laughs> it's not a delicacy that you eat. No, no, no. You, you all remember uh, uh, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and uh, they were grumbling and complaining and not having faith in God, and God finally said, enough, and he sent fire serpents into the into the camp of Israel, and uh, and people were dying because they were being beaten, uh, eaten, not eaten, but uh, bitten by these uh, serpents. Well, and, and God's solution to that was to uh, have um, Moses create a bronze serpent, stick it on a pole, and if you look at it after you're bit, you'll, you'll live. Yeah, that's what this is about. In fact, rather than confuse you with two sermon information, bits of sermon information, we're going to stop right here, and we're going to listen to this sermon first. So without any further ado, here is Pastor William Swirla preaching his sermon entitled A Serpent on a Stick. Serpent on a Stick. And no, this is not something you can go get at your local Piggly Wiggly. So here we go. Here's Pastor Swirla. In the name of Jesus. Fire snakes were loose in the camp of Israel, (coughs) slithering all over the place, hiding in dark corners, slipping in through tent doors and into sleeping bags. Venomous and deadly, people were dying all over the camp of Israel. The Lord sent those snakes. They were his judgment over the grumbling of a faithless and ungrateful people. Ungrateful for the bread that fell from heaven, the manna that fell every day but Saturday, And there was enough on Friday to cover Saturday. And for the fresh water that flowed from the stricken rock, they despised the Lord's food, the Lord's drink, the Lord's word. They despised the Lord. They despised their freedom. And they wanted to return to slavery in Egypt. And so God sent snakes. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, the people came crawling to Moses with their confession. We have sinned, they said, when we spoke against the Lord and against you. That's a good start. Confession is always a good start when you are snake bitten. Tell the truth, admit your sin, stop trying to cover it up, stop trying to justify yourself. We have sinned against the Lord and against one another and against the Lord's servant in thought, in word, in deed, by things done, by things left undone. You may as well admit it and stop trying to deny it. The sting of death is all around you. Don't pretend it isn't there and you don't know why. Don't blame everyone around you own it. The Lord sent the deadly snakes into the camp of Israel to drive his people to repentance, to save them. And don't think he doesn't do the same with us, his church. 
and with those who despise that living bread from heaven and that drink that flows from the cross. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, some of you have become sick and some have even died as the result of the way you approach the supper of the Lord. They prayed to Moses for intercession. Pray the Lord to take the snakes away from us. The Lord sent them. He alone can take them away. Moses, as a picture of Christ, stands between Israel and God, a mediator, a go-between. Notice they don't speak straight to Yahweh. They go through his designated intermediate, Moses, who stands in the breach. He prays to God for the people about the deadly snakes that God had sent. And notice, too, that the Lord doesn't simply take away the snakes as they had asked. That would have been the easy solution. Instead, he provides a cure, an anti-venom, a sacrament. Karen and I took a tour of the Long Beach Aquarium on Monday night. It's one of those special behind-the-scenes tour for members where you can kind of look at the, uh, the parts you can't see from the general public. And it was after public hours, and so the place was really quiet. And you could get up close to the exhibits and actually see things and read the stuff around it rather than just tripping over people all over. So it was really nice. They have a display of tropical water snakes. I forgot their name there. They're very beautiful. They're black and they're silver banded. Beautiful, beautiful snakes. Uh, they are also the most deadly snake in the world, or among the most deadly. They are so deadly that only two members of the aquarium staff have keys to get into the exhibit, lest somebody get the bright idea of letting these snakes loose. And they keep a supply of anti-venom at St. Mary's Hospital in Long Beach, just in case. The anti-venom for the fire snakes of the camp of Israel was a sacramental sign instituted by God with a word of promise. God told Moses, make a fiery serpent, make, make an image, a model of this thing, and set it up on a pole and raise it up, and everyone who is bitten, when he looks on this image, will live. It's a material object, an image, with the promise of God attached to it. Look on this bronze serpent on a stick, and you will live. You will survive the venomous snake bites. That's how it worked. Everyone who looked at the bronze serpent lived. It was the anti-venom for those fire snakes. Now, you might wonder, how can a bronze serpent do such great things? It's kind of a Lutheran question. It sounds like something straight out of the catechism, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. It's not the bronze serpent, indeed, that does these things, but the word, the word of promise that God has attached to that snake on a stick. It's not the bronze, nor is it really the image, although if Moses had fashioned it into the image of a mouse or a chipmunk, that wouldn't have worked. God said, a serpent. So you make a serpent. You don't mess with the Lord's signs. You do what he tells you and what he institutes. 
And it was this bronze serpent, a cure that resembled the disease itself, that held the promise of God's word attached to it, that whoever looked on that thing would live. Now, suppose you were an Israelite, and your best friend or your relative is lying on the ground, twitching, writhing in agony, foaming at the mouth, bitten by one of these fire snakes that had been sent by God into the camp of Israel. What would you do knowing what you know? Would you say, oh, dear friend, pray this prayer for the snake bitten, and everything will work out fine? No. You wouldn't say, get your life right with the Lord, and the Lord will take care of you, right? No. You would say, lift up your eyes and look. Look on this thing, this image of the very thing that bit you, this serpent on the pole. Behold the serpent of the Lord. Look on this thing and live. Suppose you yourself had been snake-bitten and survived because somebody did the same thing for you, grabbed you by the hair and bolted your eyes onto that image, that ugly image. You looked on that hideous serpent and you survived. Do you suppose that you might be eager to tell your fellow Israelites about the serpent on the pole and make sure they looked? Would you worry about offending their religious sensitivities or not respecting their belief systems or even pushing on their fear of snakes. Ooh, I don't like snakes. I don't like looking at that. Look on it. God says so. No, of course not. You wouldn't take no for an answer. You couldn't take no for an answer. Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller, that quirky magic act in Las Vegas, recorded a video on his home computer that was all the rage a couple of months ago on the Internet Someone in our congregation alerted me to it. Penn is an avowed atheist, and he's fairly outspoken about it. He incorporates his atheism into his magic act, and he is utterly merciless about his criticism of religion in general and Christianity in particular. But there was an incident after one of his shows that really rattled him to the core And he made a little video about it the next morning. I mentioned it in Bible class a few months ago. Apparently, a man came up to Penn Gillette after a show, and he handed him one of those little pocket New Testaments with the Psalms that the Gideons hand out. And all the man said to Penn was something like this. What's in this book is very, very important to me and something that I believe very deeply. And I think that you ought to take another look at this for yourself before you pass judgment on Christianity. He wasn't aggressive about it. He wasn't hostile. He was just very honest and genuine and plain. And it genuinely impressed Penn Gillette, the atheist. And he said this in his homemade video. This is the sentence. He says, I do not respect people who do not proselytize. (laughs) Who'd ever thought you'd hear that from an atheist? I do not respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and that people could be going to hell, and you think, well, it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? That's coming from a diehard atheist. Does it make you think? It made me think long 
and hard. It made me wonder whether I, too, in some apathetic sort of way, hate my neighbor because I won't tell him about the antidote to eternal damnation. It made me repent, too. Imagine knowing about the bronze serpent. Imagine being cured yourself from snake bite and not telling anybody else about it, watching other people die, and you know the solution. How much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? I bet you never expected to hear that sort of thing from the mouth of an atheist. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. Humanity is snake-bitten, includes you and me. It's been that way since Adam and Eve listened to the serpent in Genesis 3. We are born snake-bitten, dead with the venom of the law that's coursing through our veins. The sting of death is sin, Paul says, and the power, the power, the venom of sin, what makes it so deadly is the law that kills the sinner. That's our condition from the greatest to the least, from the oldest to the youngest. But God has provided a cure, a cure that looks curiously like the diseased. His son, pinned to a cross, dying a damned death, the cursed man. He looks damned by God, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He is in our place, and he is for all of us and for our salvation. This is how God loves this snake-bitten world. He doesn't simply love it abstractly and in general. Oh, nice world, I love you. No, he loves the world in a very specific way and only in this way. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, true God of his father, true man of his mother, born of woman, born under the law to take the sting of death and become for the world the anti-venom for snake-bitten humanity. The father didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, although sometimes you wouldn't know it for listening to Christians, but to be condemned for the world. His condemnation is our acquittal. His death is our life. He came to be judged, one man for all men, one human being for all humanity. He came to be lifted up, and in being lifted up to draw all to himself into his death, as in the one man Adam all sinned and all die and all are condemned, so in the one man, the second Adam, Jesus the Christ, all are forgiven, all are justified, and all live. As Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so the Father has lifted up his Son on the cross that whoever looks on him in faith, trusting that the bleeding, broken, dying man on the cross is his life and forgiveness and salvation, has eternal life. Can you imagine how precious that anti-venom at St. Mary's Hospital in Long Beach is? Especially if you reached into that display 
and got bitten by one of those beautiful poisonous snakes. Imagine how grateful you would be that that anti-venom is there. How much more precious the good news, the gospel of free forgiveness, of eternal life, of salvation to an undeserved sinner. You've received it. You know what I'm speaking about. You know how they make antivenom? They inject the poison from a snake into a horse or a goat. Let's substitute a lamb for dramatic effect, huh? And then as the animal builds up immunity, its antibodies are collected, and there's your antivenom. In other words, it comes from one who has survived the poison. Christ became sin for us, though he himself had no sin. Christ was damned for us, though he was the, and is, the beloved son of God. He died on the accursed tree of the cross. He took the venom of sin with the full power of the law, everything. And he took it to the grave in his death, and he rose triumphantly over sin and death and the law. He survived the sting of death for us, and he provides that anti-venom here, here in baptism, here in the word of forgiveness, here in the body and the blood, the very death and life of Jesus whose body and blood were given into death and were raised from the dead to become the anti-venom of sin and the law, the very, what the ancients called the medicine of immortality, the medicine of eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Look on this man, this Son of God, this Savior, and live. Point others to him that they may live in him too. The sting of death is sin. The venom of sin is the law. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us the victory in his dying and in his rising. In the name of Jesus. Amen. There's no way to improve on that. The law preached to convict us of our sin and show us our sinful condition Christ and him crucified for our sins, his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, the antidote for the snake bite that we've all suffered from. Hmm. Like I said, you can't improve on that. All right, our next sermon comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, preached by Pastor Jeremy Rohde on the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. Now, I'm not going to read the entire Gospel reading because we just recently played a Pastor Charmley sermon on this same text. So if you want to stop and pause and read the text for yourself, you may, and then start up the tape here again. <clears throat> tape, I'm dating myself. Start up the MP3 file again, and uh, and then you know just pick it up from here. But here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde, the sermon entitled... I am the life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. 
Like a good and faithful child of God, Martha gives the right and faithful answer. Her brother has died. What else can she say? She knows that the only way to face death is to cling to and repeat the promises of our Heavenly Father. Like a good and faithful pastor, Jesus comes to comfort Martha. Her brother has died. And he knows that the only way to give comfort in the time of death is to cling to and repeat the promises of our Heavenly Father. Like a good and faithful pastor, Jesus looks Martha in the eye and speaks the promise of God. Your brother will rise again. Like a good and faithful child of God, Martha answers in faith. The conversation could have ended there. But it doesn't. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, Martha says. I am the resurrection, Jesus says. If we take Jesus at his word, the resurrection is a person. The resurrection is not merely a future event that Jesus points you to. The resurrection is Jesus Himself. I am the resurrection, He says, and the life. We know that Jesus is saying something profound, but what is He saying? Let's rewind. Before Jesus came to Martha, before Lazarus died, before Jesus delayed those two days, all the way back to the beginning when Jesus first hears that Lazarus is ill, this illness does not lead to death, Jesus says. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. This illness does not lead to death, Jesus said. But we know that Lazarus did die. So, either Jesus was wrong when he said this illness does not lead unto death, or we have a profoundly different understanding of what death is than Jesus has. A living Lazarus, waddling out of the tomb, still bound with linen strips at the end of the story, is proof enough that Jesus isn't wrong. What we're left with is the fact that Jesus has a profoundly different understanding of death than us. The disciples first pick up on this when, after two days of delay, he says to them, let's go to Judea again. The disciples thought the two-day tarry was a good idea. In fact, they thought it should go on indefinitely. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. 
And are you going to go there again? Rabbi, don't you know that by going to help Lazarus, you are walking into your own death? Jesus answers them with a word about day and night, light and darkness. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Who is the light of the world? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees Jesus. The disciples fear the Jews, fear death. They stumble because they do not see that Jesus is the light of the world. If they could see who it was walking with them, they wouldn't fear. They wouldn't even be afraid of death itself. And now the light of Christ shines upon us. And we see that we must have a profoundly different understanding of life and death than the people of this dark world. The people of this world are bullied by death. We can't go to Judea, the disciples say, or we'll die bullied by death. I can't stand up for the right thing, the employee says. I'll lose my job, end up on the streets, maybe even die. Bullied by death. We can't be Lutheran anymore, or we will die, the church says. Bullied by death. When death snaps its fingers... Everyone scurries and jumps in line. The truth is, we jump in line when a lot less than life is on the line. God or money. God or convenience. God or our own pet sin. God's way or our way. It takes a lot less than the threat of death to make us get in line but not Jesus. For him, nothing comes before God. He won't betray God even if it means the worst possible suffering. He is not going to get bullied. Not even by death. And when talk of Lazarus' death, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus, when talk of his death comes to bully Jesus. Jesus sits there for two whole days. Death is not in charge. The difference between Jesus' understanding of life and death and our own is made even clearer to his disciples when he says to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I will go to awaken him. 
The disciples said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. But Jesus spoke about his death. And there you have it. The disciples see sleep as sleep and death as death. But to Jesus, death is only sleep. Now don't get the wrong idea. Jesus isn't saying that death is no big deal. He isn't saying that death is an okay thing. In fact, quite the opposite. We see the Lord Himself weep bitterly with great tears, groaning within Himself as He is led to His dear friend Lazarus' tomb. Jesus isn't trying to paint a pretty and poetic picture of death. He hates the sinfulness and brokenness and death that has infected our world. But that is just the point. Jesus calls death sleep because He means to undo death. Not just Lazarus' death, but your death. All death. The only way to undo death is to undo sin. Jesus means to undo sin. The only way to undo sin is the blood and the flesh, the scourges and chastisement, the thorns and blackness of God's forsakenness on a Friday afternoon. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, he is also saying, yes, I will take upon myself all of this, all your sin and all your death, and by my suffering I will undo your sin, and by my death I will undo your death. And therefore, your death, dear Lazarus, dear Christian, is but slumber. There could not be more costly words than these. There could not be more comforting words than these. It's as if our Lord were saying to you, your sin is my suffering, my suffering is your forgiveness. Your death is my death. My death is your life. When they lay your body into the earth, it is nothing but slumber. I have the power to wake you up, to take your life back up again. I have snatched the key to your grave from the clenched fist of Satan. Therefore, do not be bullied by Satan, nor bullied by death, or any lesser thing. In fact, what we call death is not even death at all. Not with Jesus. With Him, death is only slumber. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him, Jesus says. When He came, He found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Four days. John includes this little detail. Lazarus is not like Wesley in The Princess Bride, 
He is not, as Miracle Max says, mostly dead. Lazarus is dead, dead. Four days dead. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, dead. And what else can be said? What else can be done? Martha knows that if Jesus would have been there, her brother would not have died. Martha also knows that death is nothing but sleep to her Lord. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you, she says to Jesus. Like a good and faithful pastor, Jesus looks Martha in the eye and speaks the promise of God, your brother will rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, Martha says. I am the resurrection, Jesus says, and the life. The resurrection is not merely a future event. The resurrection is a person. I am the resurrection, Jesus says. And life is not the 30 years or 30 minutes that you have left. Life is a person. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. I am life, your Lord says. Life is not the air that you now breathe, or the bread that you eat, or your heart as it beats in your chest. True life is Jesus. And therefore death is not the last breath of the body, the last beat of the heart, the body being sown into the earth. This is merely sleep, as Jesus calls it. If true life is Jesus, then true death is not having Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject life, but to have Jesus is to have life. Death is not merely something that happens to you in the future. Death happens to you now. To set the mind on the flesh is death, Paul says. The sins of your flesh, the worries of your flesh, the fears of your flesh. To set your mind on your flesh is death. And so you find yourself bound with the cords of true death bound even tighter than Lazarus was in the tomb. This is true death. You can have breath in your lungs and a heartbeat in your chest and still be dead, dead. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, dead. The stench of sin and death, dead. But this day, there comes to you One who is life, true life, eternal life. And eternal life is not something that will merely just happen to you in the future. Jesus has come to you now. 
Eternal life has come to you now. Preached into your ears. Placed into your mouth. Poured into your lips. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And it is the Spirit that enlightens you with the Gospel so that you have eyes to see that the One who is with you is the light of the world. To set your mind on the flesh is death. To set your mind on Jesus is life. He is the death of your sins. He is the death of your worries. He is the death of your fears. He is the resurrection and the life. Your resurrection. Your life. The Lord Jesus cries to you with a loud voice. Your sins are forgiven. And with that all-powerful word, life floods back into you. The cords of death are broken and loosed. You come out of the grave of your guilt and fear into His marvelous light. True life is what Christ is giving to you right now. Jesus now means life now. Jesus on the last day means life on the last day. Then comes the literal, physical resurrection of your body as He is risen in His. Unbroken life for you, beginning right now and continuing on, for you will live into the ages of the ages. As Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus now means life now. This is the martyr's strength, the believer's calm. Life is nowhere else but with Christ. Do you believe this? Do you know who it is who is walking with you? I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. I am the resurrection. I am. In his name, amen. Amen. (laughs) Never, ever get tired of hearing about Jesus for me and what he's done for me. It's the thing that actually gives me hope. And it does give me life. Life to know that my sins are forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. That the one who commanded Lazarus from the grave is one day going to call me and you out of the grave. Hmm. What an amazing, loving, gracious, powerful God. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know what that means. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month 
to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.